0: This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So scripture uses a number of metaphors to describe who we as followers of Jesus are collectively. We are the church, which comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which just means gathering. This is what we've done, right? We have gathered together today, physically gathered here in this room. We are the body of Christ and individually members of that body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. We are the bride of Christ, and Jesus is the bridegroom. But my favorite of all the metaphors the scripture uses is family. And Think about it. What is it that makes us family? What is it that unites unrelated strangers? I got to imagine not everybody in this room knows everybody just yet. And so what is it that unites unrelated strangers together in such an intimate way that we would use this familial language to describe the way that we relate to one another, right? As, as brothers and sisters, right? what, what are our distinctives? What is it that defines who is in our family and how can you tell who is in our family? Some will say you can tell by our political affiliations right, adherence to specific uh, political, social, and economic beliefs. I'm sure we've all heard someone say, you know, you can't possibly be a Christian and support that party. You can't possibly be a Christian and vote for that candidate. And yet what I know to be true is that here in this room, there are some that have predominantly voted for one party, there are some that have predominantly voted for another party, and there are some like me that feel like just political exiles in the whole thing. So that can't be it. Some would say you can tell by our denominational affiliation, by what specific brand or version of church you attend, adherence to specific worship styles, right? Remember, uh, you got to watch for those syncopated downbeat rhythms of Satan, right? The two and the four beat, got to watch that. Don't go to a church that does that. I think all four songs this morning did that. <laughs> adherence to a specific Bible translation, right? King James only, right? That's the version that Paul used. Is not its adherence to specific practices of, say, communion and baptism, and then arguing, are they ordinances or are they sacraments, Uh, spiritual gifts that only those who can speak in tongues are actually part of God's family, church leadership structure, and other doctrinal beliefs from the days of creation to eschatology at the end and tribulation, yes or no, or millennium, pre, post, ah, and then we hear people say, you can't possibly be a Christian if you believe that. You can't possibly be a Christian if you attend that church. You can't possibly be a Christian if you worship that way. And you know, all it does, it's, it's making it about more than merely our foundational belief in one God, three persons. Uh, our beliefs, these Orthodox beliefs that we, that we read about in the creeds that define these boundaries, so to speak, like the Apostles' Creed. And uh, you guys want, you want to read that with me here real quick this morning? That was like a hypothetical or that was a hypothetical. <laughs> rhetorical. big words this morning. that was a rhetorical question. I want you to read it with me, So it's going to be up on the screen. Let's read this together. Let's just remind ourselves of what it is that we believe. It says, "I believe in God the Father Almighty." Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, amen. And yet we add to that, don't we? It's not just amen, it's and, isn't it? It's the Apostles' Creed, and it's this, and it's Jesus, and it's the cross, and and what we are effectively doing when we do that is turning our cultural preferences into Christian boundaries, aren't we? We're turning our our cultural preferences into into Christian boundaries, adding requirements that restrict relationships. Restricting who we, who we let into our doors, restricting who we let into our family based on a specific adherence to specific beliefs, behaviors, and cultural norms. And when we restrict from a relationship, rather than pointing people to Jesus, we end up pushing them away, don't we? And only those that line up with us, only those that look like us are allowed in. everyone else is kept out. And you know, that real quickly begins to resemble a cult more than a church, doesn't it? At least the church in the way that Jesus established it. The church that Peter and James led in Jerusalem. The churches that Paul planted throughout Asia and Europe. The the church that John envisioned in this beautiful passage in Revelation 7, where he saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, of one universal Catholic Church, a multicultural, ethnic family from every corner of the earth and from every generation, united by our faith in Jesus Christ. And then inviting others into relationship, into relationship with Jesus, into relationship with our family, pointing people to Jesus by loving like Jesus and recognizing that our faith in Jesus Christ makes us family. Amen? Nothing more, nothing less. Faith in Jesus, that is the distinctive that defines us, that unites us. And faith in Jesus is the foundation of Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. And that's going to be our big idea for this series that we're calling What Makes Us Family. Right? Our faith in Jesus Christ makes us family. And in this series, in this letter, we're going to see how we misunderstand the gospel, adding additional requirements to faith, right, Jesus and other things, even good things, and turning cultural preferences into Christian boundaries. We're going to see in this series the ramifications of misunderstanding the gospel, of restricting from relationship rather than inviting into relationship. And we're going to begin our series here with Paul's introduction of this letter in a sermon called Misunderstanding the Gospel. Right? Misunderstanding the Gospel. So if you haven't already, let's take out our Bibles. Let's turn them to uh, the New Testament book in Galatians. It's going to be kind of near the back. You're going to see Romans, first and second Corinthians, and then we get into uh, Galatians. Let's start here reading these first two verses. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 said, uh, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. And Paul he begins uh, this letter like most of uh, first century Greco-Roman letters first identifying himself as the sender of this letter and he notice he says along with all the brothers who were with him as he wrote uh, as he wrote this letter. And you know what's interesting if you were to read through the book of Acts you'll start to notice Paul was never alone, was he? He was always traveling with others. He was living life with others. He was pouring into others, sharing meals with others, doing life together with others, and he always mentions that. He was together with the brothers. And then second, he addresses the recipients of this letter. He says, to the churches of Galatia. And notice here, he's not writing to one specific local expression of the church. No, he, he's, he's writing to a collection of churches, isn't he? Throughout the, the Roman province of Galatia in southern and, and central Turkey. An area that included cities like Antioch and uh, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, And these are cities where Paul had had planted churches on his first missionary journey with Barnabas in about 47 and 48 AD, stories that we read about in Acts 13 and 14. And so what that means is that this was a very personal letter that Paul wrote. It It was written to churches that he planted and to people that he knew, people that he loved dearly. And he but he also wasn't writing just to let them know he missed them. Uh, he wasn't writing to let them know, thinking of you, happy birthday. Uh, he wasn't sending them a Christmas card with that letter that kind of summarizes the whole last year. That Let's be honest, does anybody read those? Yes? Okay. That was a trick question. The answer was supposed to be yes, because y'all put a lot of work in it. I'm going to call out a dear sibling of mine, just a little sister. I won't say her name. She, uh, every so often, she writes her letter from the perspective of her cat, And it's my favorite Christmas letter. I already know everything in there, but I didn't know how the cat saw everything play out. All that to say, Paul ain't doing that here. I don't even know if Paul had a cat, um, but he's not writing it from his perspective of the cat or anything. No, what he's doing is he's writing to address very specific issues that were impacting these churches in Galatia. And we get a very immediate sense of the issues he's addressing by this very intentional introduction Defending two things, defending both his ministry and his message, right? Because those were the two things that were under attack. Those were the two things that were being questioned. And first, I want us to see Paul here defending his ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he's defending his ministry because the authenticity of a, as an apostle was being called into question. Right out of the gate, he introduces himself as an apostle. Uh, An apostle is someone uh, commissioned, someone sent as a representative or an ambassador, so to speak. And in this case, he says that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. And when we hear that word apostle, I think we're quick to think of of the 12 disciples, right? That that Jesus called, that followed him for those three years of his earthly ministry. Those who were uh, witnesses to his resurrection. But Paul, Paul wasn't any of that. Paul wasn't one of the 12. Paul wasn't in the upper room in Jerusalem in Acts 1 as they cast lots to see if Justice or Matthias was going to replace Judas. Paul wasn't among the 500 who saw Jesus after his resurrection, before his ascension. Paul, Paul didn't meet any of these qualifications of an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so why is he saying he was one then? Like, for example, if you come up to me and you say that you are a brain surgeon and I am in need of brain surgery, I'm not just going to take your word for that, okay? Just because you say you're a brain surgeon doesn't make you a brain surgeon. Or how about this one? Uh, Just because I finished second in my fantasy football league uh, doesn't mean the Bears are going to be interviewing me or hiring me for their open GM position. And all of God's Bears fans said amen for that. Because here's the deal, I finished second losing to my 10-year-old son in a four-person family league. I almost finished last. But not only that, Paul, when we look at Paul's story in the beginning of Acts, these first few chapters, he was known, he's referred to there as Saul. He He was a Jewish zealot. He was a fanatic. He was an extremist. And what he was doing at the time, he was actively trying to hunt down, arrest, and even execute Christians, these so-called followers of, of the way, the way of, the way of Jesus. And what he was doing, he was it was like he was running his own version of the Hunger Games with Christians, only, get this, the odds were not in the Christian's favor by any stretch of the imagination. But all of this, the reason he was doing this, the reason he was persecuting Christians was because they threatened the Jewish way of life in the first century Roman Empire. See, the Romans demanded that everyone bend the knee, so to speak, that everyone worship and pay tribute to their pagan gods. There was, there was no concept of freedom of religion. There was no concept of the separation of church and state. Now, in the Roman Empire, Caesar was God, and he was to be worshiped as lord. And this, this, this cultic worship, it, it saturated every aspect of culture. And, and you are expected to participate in every feast, in every festival. And those that refused to participate, those that refused to worship, they, they angered the gods, people would say. They angered the gods and they put the entire community at risk. And so if you failed to participate and something bad happened, you can guess the town's coming after you. But the Jewish people, what they had done is they had negotiated a truce with Rome, kind of. They were given sort of a, a religious exemption, so to speak. They were exempt from worshiping Caesar as Lord so long as they submitted and obeyed him. They were excluded from praying to Rome so long as they prayed for Rome and prayed for her good. But then along come these Christians, these pesky Christians, these followers of the way, and they threatened the Jewish way of life that they had set up because they, too, refused to worship Caesar. They refused to worship Caesar's Lord because they worship Jesus as Lord, Jesus, the, the Son of God, they claimed, the, the promised Messiah, they claimed, the risen Christ, they claimed. And by doing that, they were putting the Jewish religious exemption at risk. And so Paul, Saul, he, he and his fanatic friends, they set out to neutralize the threat. And they thought, you know, if we can arrest and we can execute all of the Christians, problem solved. We're good. And when we get to uh, Acts 7 and 8, and we see the, the stoning uh, of Stephen, as soon as you get to the beginning of chapter 8, who's there? Who is there overseeing this whole thing? Paul. So imagine... Imagine the audacity of this former assassin now claiming to be an apostle. It's a pretty drastic change, isn't it? It's kind of like when Arnold Schwarzenegger shows up in Terminator 2, okay? And now instead of trying to kill John Connor's mother, right, to prevent him from being born, now he's like trying to save John Connor. Same guy? T1, T2, different story. Paul. Paul claims he is an apostle. But notice he claims his apostleship is not from men. Men are not the source of his apostleship. He he wasn't voted in by a bunch of men to be an apostle. It wasn't from men, nor is it through man. Man was not the means. They were not the medium through which God appointed him as an apostle. No, he says that he was an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And what he's saying here is that he was appointed an apostle by God himself. He was commissioned as an apostle by the risen Christ. And we read about that in this absolutely amazing story in Acts 9 where Paul, he's actually on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus and he's on his way there on like a work trip to go kill more Christians. And it says that suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul was a divinely appointed and ordained messenger of the gospel, an apostle of Jesus Christ, his representative. And that's important because I think that impacts the way in which we read the words of this letter. It means that Paul spoke on God's behalf. The words of this letter, they are not simply those of a former fanatic turned follower. No, these are the very words of God penned in this beautiful dance between the human mind and the Holy Spirit. And that's important for us to hear and to remember and recognize because I think we are, we are naturally drawn to the words of Jesus in the Gospels, aren't we? In, in fact, we are so naturally drawn to them that some versions, one you might be reading from, uh, actually uh, put those in red fonts. They call that a, a red letter edition. The red letters representing the words that Jesus spoke in the Gospels. And what we have a tendency to do sometimes is to elevate those above the rest of Scripture, don't we? Some would even argue that the words that Paul wrote do not carry the same weight as the words that Jesus spoke. But by saying that, I think we're actually guilty of doing the very same thing that Paul's critics were doing, and that is calling his apostleship, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ into question. And so throughout this series, as we hear these words spoken and read, we hear God speaking, not only to the churches of Galatia that this letter was written to, but for all, for us here today. But Paul, he not only begins his letter defending his ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he goes on to defend his message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he defends his message because the authority of his message was being called into question. See, some, some viewed Paul not as a representative of Jesus directly, but kind of like down a couple rungs on the orchard and a representative of Jerusalem. He, he wasn't commissioned by Christ. He was commissioned by the church. And, and there were some that saw a discrepancy between his version of the gospel and theirs. And, and what they saw was that it was, it was insufficient. It was lacking. It was incomplete. It was, it was missing something. It was like he was preaching a light, watered-down version of the gospel. And Paul, Paul preached a gospel of grace, grace that he extends to the churches here in Galatia. Look at what he says in verses 3 through 5. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, he essentially like distills the gospel into just one little sentence there. And Paul, he, he, preached, he preached a gospel, which literally means the, the good news. He preached the good news of God's free gift of grace given to fallen humanity, uh, humanity that, that turned from God, right? And our sin is what made us enemies of God, separating us from God. He preached on God's grace and he preached on the peace then, that, God, that Christ's death on the cross where, where Jesus gave himself for our sins, he says, brought us this peace that it brought us, restoring our fractured relationship with God, delivering us from the present evil age of sin to the age to come, the age of the Son. And none of, this, none of this was by accident. No, he says this was according to the will of our God and Father who, who, who loved us so much The apostle John says uh, he gave his one and only son and that whoever believes in him will not perish because Jesus suffered the punishment for our sin. But have eternal life, have a restored relationship with Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. And like how else would you respond to what it is that God did for us than by giving him glory? giving him glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen? And that's exactly how the Gentile Christians in Galatia, those who who had previously worshipped these Roman pagan gods, that's exactly how they responded. They believed that that their faith in Jesus Christ, receiving what he had done and believing in who he was, had given them the right to become children of God, children of Abraham, full-fledged members of God's family, his adopted sons and daughters. And some were offended by that. Not everyone agreed with that. There were some Jewish Christians, the the biological children of Abraham who now followed Jesus, that thought, that's too easy. They're like, this ain't Staples. You don't just go hit the easy button and call it good, guys. Following Jesus has got to be harder than that. Following Jesus isn't enough. It's insufficient. So what they did is they claimed that you also had to adhere to specific aspects of the Mosaic law. Specifically, as we're going to see throughout this letter, uh, men were to be circumcised and bear the mark of the covenant, even the Gentile Christians. They were to adhere to aspects of the Mosaic law and adopt aspects of Jewish culture, uh, observing food laws, Paul's going to talk about in this letter, as well as celebrating the Jewish feasts and festivals. Because they believed that the gospel was, in fact, faith in Jesus and, right? Faith in Jesus and adherence to the law. Faith in Jesus and adopting Jewish custom. And that only those who maintained all of this were allowed into God's family and adopted as his children. And right about at this point in the letter is when Paul would break into thanksgiving, right? He he thanks the church in Rome. He thanks the church in Ephesus. Even as jacked up as the church in Corinth was, he gave thanks to God for them. My Bible between verses 5 and 6 has no thanksgiving. Does yours? No, no. Paul's hot right now. He's hot. And so he just launches right in. He doesn't waste any time. And he says in verse 6 and 7, he says, I am astonished feel like your mom's talking to you right now, don't you? I am astonished. And there's even a look. You could probably see they knew Paul. They knew what he looked like. They're like, oh my gosh, he's giving us that eye. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And I think I toned down the tone in which he said that. Every Sunday morning as we're doing sound check, uh, when Chris is here, he's like, he makes me yell just to see how the mic is. And I'm like, I kind of wanted to go louder there because I think that's what Paul's doing. He's really yelling right here. It's coming off the page. He's astonished, he says. He's shocked. He's outraged. Why? Because he had just planted these churches barely two years ago. And already in that very short period of time, these Jewish Christians, these critics of Paul had come in, and he says that they were troubling the church. They were confusing them. They were distorting and perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ and turning them to a different gospel. One that said faith in Jesus was not enough. One that said it was faith in Jesus and adhering to Mosaic law. One that said it was faith in Jesus and adopting Jewish culture. And by doing that, they were, in fact, abandoning the gospel. They were deserting the God who had called them. They were were treasonous. They were rejecting the grace that God had freely extended them. They were refusing the peace that Christ's death had secured for them. But, like, why? What's going on here? Well, Paul closes his letter revealing the reason these infiltrators were preaching another gospel why they were preaching this gospel of law rather than grace. And it was all to protect their own way of life. It was to protect their own comfort, to protect their own skin. It was to protect their preferred status in the Roman Empire. That if you just looked and acted Jewish enough, we're going to be okay and we're going to get away with this. And we're not Jewish, but if we, if we kind of like just hide in their shadow, Rome's going to let us go and it's going to be a nice, easy ride. So he says in in chapter 6, verses 12, he says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, force you Gentile Christians to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. It had nothing to do with the others. It just had to do with protecting themselves. For even those who are circumcised, they don't themselves keep the law. They're hypocrites. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. These infiltrators, they distorted and perverted the gospel of Jesus for their own personal gain and their own personal comfort. They were preaching a message that said, if we look more like our culture, we can maintain our comfort. Right? They were more concerned with living the good life than when living out the good news. They sold out. And they were dragging others with them, convincing others to follow them. If only the letter of Galatians had more relevance in the 21st century, huh? Does it look any different than the 21st century church here in the West? And what Paul responds here in this intro is he says that anyone, anyone who tells you differently than the gospel that we preached, even an angel, even me, not only are they wrong, but they are to be cursed by God. He says in verses eight and nine, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed and in case you didn't get what I was saying, he says it again. As we have said before, before being like a second ago, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Guys, Paul is not happy. He's not happy because the people that he loves are being drug away from Jesus. And so he sets out to clarify in this introduction and in this letter that our faith in Jesus Christ makes us family. Faith makes us family. Nothing more, nothing less. Amen? And if you're not excited about that, it's going to be a long series for you. But I still would like you to come and listen. And I kind of, kind of lay the, the groundwork Paul's going to spend these first two chapters continuing to defend his ministry and his message. And in chapters 3 and 4, he then moves on to detail how we become family. And he says in chapter 3 that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. These churches were being led astray because they misunderstood the gospel. They understood what makes the gospel good news. They misunderstood what it is that makes us family. And I think we misunderstand some of that too. And as I was thinking this week, I think there's, there's five common misunderstandings that we have regarding the gospel that I want us to, to walk through. Uh, I don't want us to leave here today with the same misunderstanding. And so number one, is that we misunderstand the necessity of Christ's resurrection and ascension as part of the gospel. We misunderstand the necessity of Christ's resurrection and ascension as part of the gospel. In every membership interview that we as elders do, we ask you to explain to us the gospel and find fun ways to do it. A plane is going down and you have 60 seconds to explain the gospel to the person sitting next to you. How do you do that? Hopefully you are not put under that kind of pressure. Um, hopefully you're just not in a crashing airplane but if you were how would you do that and I would say about half of the time the resurrection is entirely left out of the story and I would say that 99 percent of the time the ascension is left out of the story I remember one person including the ascension in the story of the gospel And here's the thing, like the gospel isn't good news without those two things. It's not good news without them. And I think what that shows is it shows our misunderstanding. It shows that we grasp the problem statement. We get what's wrong, right? That we get the the fall. We get the presence of sin. We get the need for forgiveness. But we miss the completeness and the wholeness and the beauty of God's response to sin as part of the gospel. We grasp the importance of the cross, right? Of Christ's substitutionary atoning death in our place. As he, Paul says here, gave himself for our sins. We get that. We we, we, we get that he he took on our sin, that he died our death, that he shed his blood to cleanse us. To restore us in relationship with God. We forget that at times, but but I think by and large we get that. But here's the thing. If the story ends at Good Friday, the story's not very good, is it? Because if the story ends at Good Friday, that means death won. It means that death defeated God. It means that death has not lost its sting. To the point that Paul, he he would later write in in his letter to the church in Corinth, he says, if Christ has not been raised, if the resurrection ain't real, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. None of this matters if the resurrection didn't happen. Let's just pack up. Let's go home. I'm going to go see if I can get my job at Motorola back again. Because there ain't no point in standing up here if there's no resurrection. But on Sunday morning, the tomb was empty, wasn't it? The women came to the tomb, and they're like, oh, Jesus ain't there. Big scary angel there. No, Jesus. The tomb was empty. Death didn't win. It had lost its sting. Because, as Paul says, God the Father raised the Son from the dead, defeating death, breaking the chains of sin that enslave us to this present evil age of sin. But the story still didn't end there. Because what happened later is that Christ, he ascended into heaven. And today, and this might be the most important part that we forget, today, right now, in this very moment, he's not frantically pacing around wondering when the pandemic's going to end. No, he is seated. Calmly seated, where? At the right hand of God. He is alive, amen? He is reigning, currently reigning, as King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's still not the entirety of it. Because as the sun ascended, what happened? The spirit descended, didn't he? The spirit descended as the sun ascended, and, and that thing That Jesus promised his disciples in their last meal together of this helper that would come. He came on Pentecost, didn't he? And now God not only dwells among his people, he dwells within his people. As the spirit of God dwells within us. And so I hope you see the gospel is incomplete. The gospel is not good news without Christ's victorious resurrection and his glorious ascension. We cannot miss that. But here's the second misunderstanding. Number two, we misunderstand the personal nature of the gospel often. we misunderstand the personal nature of the gospel. Often what we hear is the gospel shared in this very formulaic, impersonal way as though the gospel can be plugged into a spreadsheet. And you know my love of spreadsheets, but not when it comes to that. It's not a spreadsheet. It's not an algorithm. It's not a formula. It's not the step-by-step instruction manual of what God did, as though it is something out there, because when we convey it that way, when we believe it that way, it misses that that God did this because of you, because of me. He, He did this for you. He did this for me, right? The gospel is good news because of what God did in response to our sin, to forgive us of our sin. Why? For no other reason than he loves you. He does not owe you anything. That's what makes it the grace of God. It is not owed. It is freely given. The gospel's not algebra, amen? The gospel's a love story. It is lived out poetry. It's not just good news. It is good news for you and for me and for the people out there who don't yet know it. But we misunderstand the personal nature of the gospel. Number three, we misunderstand the corporate nature of the gospel. We misunderstand the corporate nature of the gospel. And and pretty soon, as we're reading this book in front of us, uh, the gospel becomes all about me, doesn't it? It becomes all about me. We've individualized salvation and sanctification. We have made following Jesus an individual sport, and we measure the success with individual metrics, attendance, baptisms, salvations individuals. That's how we view it. But let's go all the way back to the book of Exodus. When we read the story of the Exodus, God didn't rescue an individual or even individuals from slavery, did he? No, he liberated a people from slavery. And he he said to them, I will be your plural. I will be the plural, your God. And you, plural, will be my people. Just to clarify, I didn't mean plural God, I meant you plural, okay? I will be your God and you will be my people. In the New Testament, we see Peter say that we are a people for his own possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And yet so often when we read the pages of Scripture, every time we come to the word you, we think of me rather than we, don't we? Every you is singular. Tim and I were talking this week. We're like, if we were able to do a Bible translation, and by we, I mean Tim, um, we would just use the word y'all for the plural. We're not Southern, not trying to be. When I say bless your heart, I really mean it, not the Southern way. But in some way, right, we've got to differentiate you from you. Not every you in your Bible is singular. It's, It's not all about you not all about me but yet that's often how we read it and even this letter for example it wasn't written to an individual it wasn't written to a few individuals it was written to a church a collection of churches the big c church in galatia this gathering this physical gathering that unites us together as unique individual members of one single body Right? The gospel is corporate. Following Jesus is a team sport. We follow the way of Jesus together. And so let's not misunderstand the, the corporate nature of the gospel. And number four, this is the one that I think has been hitting me the most as of late. It's that we misunderstand the beginning of the gospel. And when I say it's been hitting me, it's like I've recognized how I have misunderstood this. We misunderstand the beginning of the gospel. We, we miss the very good creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, because what I think we're prone to do, we're quick to begin telling the story of the gospel in Genesis 3. We, we skip the first couple chapters. We, we skip to Genesis 3 with the fall, where everything went wrong, where the wheels fell off the wagon, where the snake enters the world. And when we do that, we start with God speaking a curse over creation. And I think that impacts the way that we view creation. I think that impacts the way that we view our vocation. Uh, we see creation as this broken, evil thing that we are constantly trying to escape from, to be saved from. And and by doing that, we miss out on the beauty of Genesis 1. We, We miss the beauty of God's not just good creation, but very good creation. And not only that, we miss our place in creation, our purpose in creation. He it says in Genesis 1, it says, so God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything. We were created in the image of God. In the image and likeness of God, we were created. And we were created as representatives within creation to continue in the act of creation. God has invited us into that. And not just, not just making more babies, right? Don't limit that phrase to be fruitful and multiply to just babies. That means not everyone's participating. And yet I'm sure we probably all heard it that way, haven't we? No, no, this is an invitation to everyone. Raise your hand if you're here and you're everyone. Yeah, that's an invitation to all of you, even the ones that didn't raise your hand. You've still been invited. This is about making babies, this is about filling the earth, filling the earth with culture, creating beautiful things from God's very good creation. And we were placed in the garden, Genesis 2 says, to work it and to keep it, to cultivate creation and to care for creation. And if you're like, Ash has gone green, whatever, God said it. Amen. And I think that starts to change the way in which we view our vocation, doesn't it? And Tim just preached on this a couple weeks ago. Man, go make beautiful things. Make beautiful music. Make beautiful crochet. If you're a teacher, teach beautiful lessons. I don't know, what's everybody else doing in here? If you're retired, do beautiful retired things. If you're a software engineer, please, God, write beautiful software. I got a brother over here who I know makes some beautiful beard oil because he gave me some for Christmas. If you run a library, make it a beautiful place to come read beautiful books. Man, if you're a mechanic, repair cars in a beautiful way. I don't know. Whatever you do, it changes it, doesn't it? Care for cultivate creation. Work it and keep it. Because that subtle difference to the beginning of the story in Genesis 1 versus Genesis 3, it changes how we respond. It changes how we live. We recognize, you know what we are? We are people who live between the advents. After Christ's resurrection before his return, We are on a journey from from a very good garden to an eternal city, to the new Jerusalem, to a renewed creation. God ain't going to throw this thing away and junk it. He's going to renew it. And we will experience a resurrection like his, won't we, in this new creation. Because we have been delivered from this present evil age to the age of the sun already, but not yet yet. We are citizens of another kingdom, of a heavenly kingdom. And yet, in the midst of that, number five, we misunderstand living out the gospel in this life, in the here and now. We misunderstand living out the gospel. See, eternity, eternal life, eternal life that the gospel saves us to, it's not something that we are waiting to begin. It's something that has already begun. It begins the day you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior and submit to him as king. It doesn't begin after you die. It begins now. We get to experience that relationship with God now. That wholeness in Christ now. Not just me, but we. You see how this all just keeps coming back together. We misunderstand one of these. We really misunderstand all of them. And so that's why Jesus, he taught us to pray for thy kingdom to come. For thy will to be done Not later, but now on earth, now as it is now in heaven. N.T. Wright, who wrote an absolutely incredible commentary on the book of Galatians, he says, the great drama of scripture is not fundamentally about how we can leave earth and go to live with God in heaven, but how God gets to come and live with us how he lives within us in the here and in the now as we live out the gospel here and now. Right? Our faith in Jesus Christ makes us family and that changes the way that we live in this world. Right? The gospel is not about how to escape the earth or about how to get to heaven. That's not what it's about. The gospel is not about how to leave. It is about how to live and about how to love. Our faith in Jesus Christ makes us family. And our faith in Jesus Christ leads us to love, to love like Jesus. And I love how Paul, he's gonna close this letter in the last two chapters. I so badly wanna jump to them right now, but we're not. But to give you just a taste of what lies ahead, he says that through love, serve one another. Why? He says because the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And what word is that? Love. Loving one another definitely but also loving our neighbor and loving them as ourself and loving our enemy and praying for those who persecute us. That includes everyone. And so Paul says that we are to love by bearing one another's burdens. We, not me, we. Not growing weary of doing good, but doing good to who? Paul says to everyone. There's no footnote, there's no asterisk in your Bible when we get to that verse. That's what it means to look like Jesus. That's what it looks like to live out your faith. James would say, faith without works is dead. Paul says the same thing. Faith without living out that faith in love is no kind of faith. But this is what it looks like for us to be a family. This is what it looks like for us to live. This is what it looks like for us to love. you know, the beauty of gathering together like this every Sunday is that um, we get to end with a family meal, don't we? Every Sunday we have a family meal together where we remember and we celebrate that love that God poured out on us in communion. We we gather at the Lord's table and we partake in the Lord's supper and we taste and we see that the Lord is so very, very, very good. But before we jump into that, I want to give us some time to reflect. I want us to have time for the spirit to continue to stir i want to give us time to repent of any sin and to return our hearts our affections and our attentions back to god i want us to reflect on what it is that makes us family i want us to reflect on what makes the gospel such good news i want us to reflect on how we may have misunderstood the good news of the gospel And so I'm going to give us a minute to pray silently and then I'm going to pray over us and then we're having a family meal together. One that's very low on calorie count, just a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice, but one that means so, so much. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.